Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar.com. Every day at Invesco, they bring together ideas with technology, data with inspiration, and investors with solutions. Find out more at Invesco.com slash together. Invesco Distributors, Inc. In this week's podcast, equity analyst David Swartz highlights three high-yield stocks with stable dividends in the consumer sector. Christine Benz invites Judith Ward from T. Rowe Price to discuss cash cushions. Equity analyst Aaron Lash picks a wide moat stock from the packaged food aisle. Alec Lucas shares a few great picks from Vanguard's large cap offerings. And equity analyst John Barrett discusses why investors should wait before purchasing two noted payroll processors. Let's get started. Equity analyst David Swartz highlights three high-yield stocks with stable dividends in the consumer sector. Department store stocks, Macy's, Kohl's, and Nordstrom, are high-yielding dividend stocks, and we think each of them has currently stable dividends with growth potential. Moreover, we view all of them as undervalued at current levels. Department stores have struggled with weak store traffic and a competitive apparel market in 2019. We acknowledge these challenges and expect that competitive pressures will continue. Yet Macy's, Kohl's, and Nordstrom are among the largest U.S. retailers, both in-store and online. None of them are in financial distress. Macy's pays an annual dividend of $1.51 per share, giving it a dividend yield of nearly 10%. We rate Macy's as a no-moat company, and our fair value estimate is $27 per share. Management has stated it will not cut its dividend, but given the very high yield, this must be viewed as a possibility. Macy's raised its dividend consistently until 2017, but has kept it at the $1.51 level since, as it has prioritized debt reduction. We forecast Macy's will pay about 52% of 2019's earnings as dividends and expect a 45% dividend payout ratio in the long term. We project Macy's will hold its dividend constant through 2022 as it continues to pay down debt and then begin to increase its dividend again in 2023. We forecast it will generate more than enough free cash flow to cover its dividend for the foreseeable future. Also, Macy's owns significant real estate which could be sold, providing an extra level of safety. Nordstrom pays an annual dividend of $1.48 per share, giving it a dividend yield of just under 5%. We rate Nordstrom as a narrow moat company and our fair value estimate is $55. Nordstrom raised its annual dividend consistently until 2015, but it has held it at $1.48 per share since then due to investments in large capital projects, most of which are near completion. We forecast Nordstrom will pay about 45% of its 2019 earnings as dividends, and in the long term, we forecast a dividend payout ratio of 40%. We expect Nordstrom to begin to increase its dividend again in 2022 and think it will generate more than enough free cash flow to cover its dividends. Kohl's will pay a dividend of $2.68 per share in 2019, a dividend yield of more than 5%. We rate Kohl's as a no-moat company, and our fair value estimate is $75. Kohl's began paying dividends in 2011 and has raised its dividend in every year since. We forecast Kohl's will continue to increase its dividends over at least the next 10 years and pay about 55% of its earnings as dividends. We think it will produce more than enough free cash flow to cover its dividend. Now, Christine Benz invites Judith Ward from T. Rowe Price to discuss cash cushions for pre-retirees and retirees. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. Having an emergency fund is financial planning 101, but do you need a cash cushion in retirement? Joining me to discuss that topic is Judith Ward. She's a senior financial planner for T. Rowe Price. Judy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, it's great to be here. Judy, you and the team at T. Rowe Price uh, recently looked at 
contingency funds, cash cushions in retirement. Before we get into that, let's mm -hmm. discuss how working folks mm -hmm. should approach this, people pre-retirement. Do you think that standard sort of three to six months worth of living expenses is a safe emergency fund? Is that about what I should earmark? Yeah, I think that's the general rule of thumb. And, you know, we at T. Rowe Price agree with that uh, for the most part. I think if there's a single breadwinner, um, you know, or one or your income might be sporadic or something, you might want to have gig a gig economy work yeah, or you something. Might, you might have a, a little more. And the purpose of the emergency fund, and, and I always hear people talk about, oh, it's the big expense. It's Oh, you need the new roof, and mm -hmm. it, to me, that's so cliche. There's so there's a lot of things you can plan for, um, but it. I really see it as if one of you were to lose your job, how would you make it through that period of uncertainty? I think that's the key reason for an emergency fund. It can also help with some of these larger unexpected expenses, but it's you know you don't want to have to raise your retirement savings. Right. Or put, you know, you don't want to put a mortgage on a credit card, for goodness sake. So how are you going to tide over um, during these periods of uncertainty? So we think three to six months of expenses is reasonable. Like I said, maybe a little more if there's a single earner um, that is for the household or your income is um, you know, disjointed. How about if I have a high income or some really specialized career path? Should I be a little more cautious there too? Maybe set aside a larger cushion? Um, you could, but you have to think about, um, you know, what are the expenses that you're going to still have to pay, you know, if you're out of work? Um, and how long might it take you to yeah. find another job? So that's really, I think, the considerations for how much should be in your emergency fund. And you don't need to fund everything. You know, if you're in a you know, there are ways that you can cut expenses, but it's like, you know, the mortgage payment, the important payments that you want to make sure keep going. Um, so again, you don't have to take money out of your retirement account. So this is money that should be set up outside okay. of your retirement accounts because you really want to try to keep your um, retirement goals on track even during this period of uncertainty. Okay. So let's uh, turn and talk about retirees mm -hmm. and how much of a cash cushion they could think about or should think about. You um, have been looking at that topic, and let's talk about why they may want to run with an even larger right. cash cushion or contingency fund than the people right. who are still bringing a paycheck. Right. So you know, now that you're in retirement, you don't have the paycheck anymore. Um, you can get to your retirement account. So it's really the purpose. I think has changed a little bit. Um, from when you were working, it, the whole reason is we didn't want you to have to take money out of your retirement account or use credit cards. Now, in retirement, um, it's more around, I call it a safety net, a contingency. Um, a friend of mine calls it his sleep at night money. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of to protect you when maybe markets go down, um, when you do have maybe a large unexpected expense, that you have this contingency reserve. Um, I like it especially in, in case of market volatility. It gives you an alternative to pull money um, rather than your portfolio where in case it's all down at the same time. Not that we've seen that that often, but it's just this contingency reserve. Um, you know, we think one to two years of expenses might be a good amount. And the reason we came to that was we looked at you know, again, probably a worst case scenario, right. but in 2008, how long did it take a portfolio to recover? 
and a 60-40 portfolio using just broad-based indices, um, it took about two years, you know, up to two years to recover. So you might have to draw on that for a year or two while you let your portfolio to recover. So we think that's a reasonable amount for retirees to consider. Okay. So when you take when you say one to two years worth of expenses, am I um, thinking just in terms of like my portfolio withdrawals? Because my expenses are going to be covered in part by Social sure. Security, maybe a pension, right? Yeah, yeah that is a great point. Um, so it is more of what you might be drawing from your portfolio. Okay. Um, not necessarily all expenses. If you if Social Security is is covering a lot a lot of your expenses, you're still going to have your Social Security right. payments. Um, if you have a defined benefit pension, you know that might be covering some expenses. So it's really to help with um, an alternative to drawing from your portfolio. Okay, so you can overdo it though. You, yes, you, you said can. that uh, two years is probably the high end that you'd want to think about because there is an opportunity cost to having too much in cash, right? right. That yes. it will tend to under-earn right. your long-term portfolio. Right. Yeah, and when we're talking about this cash contingency, we're talking you know money market, bank account, maybe CDs, maybe ultra-short or short-term bond. You know, so you there is an opportunity cost there for the for growth potential, and we think you know in retirement you could be in retirement for twenty to thirty years or longer. So you still need that growth potential that stocks provide. You know, maybe a more balanced approach. So yeah, the more money you have in cash, is more money you have not working for you. Um, so you have to you have to consider that as well. Okay. So in terms of where to hold it, if I'm retired, I guess I should locate my cash wherever I'm pulling my withdrawals from currently. So if right. I'm subject to RMDs, it goes in my IRA. Is that how I would think about yeah, it? Yeah, I would. You know, RMDs are going to have to come out anyway. Right. So you, um, it's you want to approach it as to, again, where the money is coming from. You know, with RMDs, you, you can't help but pull from there. Um, if you don't have, if you're not at RMD age yet, um, perhaps you do want to have it kind of outside of your retirement accounts. And that's something you can work towards um, prior to retiring is maybe building that up. Um, so yeah, you would have to look to where you're naturally kind of pulling that money. Okay, Judy, you know I'm a believer in the bucket strategy. Yes, that's so right. This, this fits with, yes. with it really well. Thank you yeah. so much for being here. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next, equity analyst Aaron Lash picks a wide-mode stock from the packaged food aisle. We've long held that the merits of Kellogg's move away from direct store distribution in favor of warehouse delivery in 2017 would prove advantageous. But the market has been more skeptical, with shares edging up less than 3% between January and July 2019 versus a nearly 20% appreciation in the Consumer Staples Index over the same period. From our vantage point, this divergence reflects Kellogg's failure to boast an improving top line as of yet, unlike peers. However, with its revised strategic playbook, we think Kellogg is poised to crack the code on profitable and sustainable sales growth. For one, although it's U.S. cereal business, which accounts for one-fifth of sales in aggregate, has been fighting an uphill battle, 
we believe the market fails to appreciate the attractive dynamics of its vast snacking mix, which accounts for 50% of sales. Further, changes to its pack formats to include more on-the-go offerings should allow for increased penetration in alternative outlets. We also think recent acquisitions, including smaller niche startups like RxBar, afford the opportunity to grease the wheels of its own innovation cycle to more nimbly respond to ever-changing consumer trends, particularly as it relates to health and wellness and taste. By abandoning direct store distribution, Kellogg stands to elevate brand spend rather than expending resources on its distribution footprint to support its entrenched retail relationships, which we view as key in the intensely competitive landscape in which it plays. And we expect efficiencies will remain a pillar to fuel these investments while also aiding profits. With a 4% dividend yield and trading at a 20% discount to our $78 fair value estimate, investors should consider buying shares in this wide moat name, a rare bargain in the packaged food aisle today. Every day at Invesco, they bring together ideas with technology, data with inspiration, and investors with solutions. Find out more at Invesco.com together. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Now, Alec Lucas shares a few great picks from Vanguard's large cap offerings. Well known for indexing, the Vanguard Group also has an underappreciated active management business, especially in large cap equities. The bulk of Vanguard's more than $300 billion in equity assets are outsourced to external sub-advisors who run 15 separate strategies, ranging from domestic, large growth, value and blend funds, to an emerging markets offering and even a recently launched ESG fund. Morningstar rates 12 of the strategies and assigns a Morningstar analyst rating of bronze or higher to 11 of them, including four gold-rated and three silver-rated strategies. The three Vanguard strategies run by Pasadena, California-based PrimeCap management company stand out. All three are rated gold, and while close to new investors, reopening at some point isn't out of the question. Investors on the outside looking in must be ready to act quick, though. Vanguard Capital Opportunity, one of PrimeCap's funds, reopened to new investors in April 2013, only to close again in December of that year. The other gold-rated strategy, Vanguard Dividend Growth, run by Wellington Management's Donald Kilbride, had been closed to new investors since July 2016, but reopened on August 1st of this year. Its reopening presents investors with a chance to buy into a resilient, mega-cap-oriented strategy that has proven its ability to grow wealth over time. Vanguard's three silver-rated strategies are all open to new investors. Wellington Management's Michael Reckmeyer runs about two-thirds of the assets of Vanguard Equity Income, with Vanguard's own in-house quantitative equity group overseeing the remaining third. The Scottish investment management firm Bailey Gifford sub-advises half of the assets of each of the two silver-rated strategies. Bailey Gifford is paired with Marathon Asset Management on Vanguard Global Equity, and Bailey Gifford is paired with Schroeder Investment Management on Vanguard International Growth. All of Vanguard's actively managed strategies come at a very cheap price. Those low fees, allied with sub-advisors like PrimeCap, Wellington, and Bailey Gifford, give Vanguard's actively managed large-cap equity lineup considerable appeal. 
So too does Vanguard's Portfolio Review Department, which provides oversight for each of the 15 strategies making sub-advisor changes when necessary. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long-term with Morningstar's new podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patek as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. And lastly, equity analyst John Barrett discusses why investors should wait before purchasing two noted payroll processors. Last month, we initiated coverage of narrow moat payroll processors Paycom and Paylocity with fair values of $173 and $82 respectively. We think both companies are modestly overvalued right now, but we awarded them a narrow moat due to switching costs. Paycom and Paylocity are similar businesses that offer payroll processing and human capital management software to small and medium-sized businesses. The target employee count for Paycom and Paylocity is 100 to 1,000 employees. Both are fast growers with over 20,000 customers and have been taking share from incumbents ADP and Paychex. The company's native cloud software with unified database architecture provide an improved user experience compared to its competitors. For this reason, roughly half of Paycom and Paylocity's new customers are conversions from either ADP or Paychex. Unlike many of their software peers, both companies are already profitable and should be able to attain some additional operating leverage as they continue to grow double digits. There are some minor differences in the companies. Paycom recently started targeting companies with up to 5,000 employees, while Paylocity has remained focused on companies with lower headcount. Additionally, Paylocity utilizes a broker network for roughly 25% of new business wins, while Paycom exclusively uses a direct sales force. In summary, we think both companies have strong qualitative profiles and that the importance of timely and accurate payroll processing for small businesses helps earn Paycom and Paylocity narrow moats. However, we think investors should wait for a pullback before considering investing. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar.com. We hope you've enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening.